It is so good to be back, isn't it? It's a lot we can't do, we can't sing. And so, By the way, did you notice the boy band we had today? I think we'll call them the, uh, the Bank Street Boys. Um, I spent the whole first half of the service thinking of that joke, so please indulge me. All right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to Glen 20 this. Because those other pastors, they're filthy. <laughs> Not you, John. You were using the other mic. I, that's fine. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, by the way, if you haven't discovered already, we uh, have put our outlines on digital format on the app, uh, which is the Bible app, basically. And you can sync it with your own Bible app by logging in and adding it to your events. But the link is at go.swec.org.au slash outline, and that'll be every week. It includes the Bible reading, so you can make it easy for yourself, and it's got other stuff on it. Okay, this work. I don't think my clickers were up. Oh, can I? Yes. President Trump said this, I think, just yesterday. The fact is, I've done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. He also said this on another time. My Twitter has become so powerful that I can actually make my enemies tell the truth. How about this one? I've had a beautiful, I've had a flawless campaign. You'll be writing books about this campaign. How about this quote? I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me. Now, Donald Trump has taken boasting to a new art form, hasn't he? And so I'm going to close with this quote. I think I'm actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the passage that we just read, believe it or not, starts a long final four chapters that is about boasting. That's the running theme throughout these four final chapters. It's about proper boasting versus improper boasting. Now, when it comes to the evils of improper boasting, it's really easy to look at guys like Trump and those extremes and think, well, I'm obviously okay. Nowhere near as bad as him. But you see, if we did that, we would fall into our own trap, wouldn't we? I mean, what did verse 12 of chapter 10 say? It said that when we measure ourselves by ourselves or we compare ourselves just with one another, that's not wisdom. That's actually foolish. So, you know, if we think we don't boast because we are comparing ourselves to someone like Trump, then that itself is a form of boasting, ironically, isn't it? I suspect that for a lot of us, improper boasting is something that these chapters will actually confront us with over the next few weeks. Now, for others, though, and I've and I got to admit this is true, for others, boasting and bragging is actually the opposite of what you struggle with. Yeah, that, that's actually true. That If anything, some of you have the problem of the, the opposite. That is, you don't really think there's anything particularly good or special about you. But I want to suggest to you that improper boasting and its opposite which could be something like self-doubt or maybe low self-esteem, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but they actually can have the same root problem behind it. Uh, what do I mean? Well, recently I discovered a really helpful infographic. You can't see it at the back there. It's called guilt versus shame. It's trying to distinguish between um, healthy guilt versus unhealthy guilt versus shame. And I'll just zoom in 
um, so you can see a little bit. Maybe you can read it. If not, don't worry. Let me read it out. It talks about how helpful guilt is caused by actions or behaviors that break objective definitions of right and wrong. All right? There is such a thing as helpful, good guilt, but it's based on breaking objective definitions of right or wrong. Whereas unhelpful guilt, the middle column, is caused by actions or behaviors that break unrealistically high standards. You got that? Unrealistically high standards. Where did those high standards come from? Come to that in a moment. But look at shame. Shame is caused by an innate sense of being worthless or inherently defective. Now, some of you see these definitions and automatically you can identify, particularly with unhelpful guilt and shame. Now, what are some of the drivers of both unhelpful guilt and shame? There's probably lots of factors, but a key one is, I suggest, the approval of others, isn't it? The approval of others. What others think of me affects what I think of myself. What others think of me sets that impossibly unrealistic high standard. Now, if you get that, it means that the boaster and the self-doubter are really not so different, are they? The overconfident and the underconfident are not that different. Because underneath both is the same problem. We seek the approval of others and we gain our identity and value and self-worth from the approval of others. The challenge of this chapter in 2 Corinthians 10 is to ask us the question... God is asking you today, all of you today, whose approval are you seeking? Whose approval are you seeking? The key verses to this chapter are in the last two verses where Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. My prayer is today that God would speak to each one of us speak his approval into our lives and that he would transform the what we take pride in and how we view ourselves and how we view others and that he might even today break the power of both prideful boasting as well as the guilt and shame cycle. I believe that God wants to do that today. So will you join me in prayer so that we can ask him to do that? Let's pray. Father God, as I open today your words... I pray that you would do exactly that, that you would so deeply impact us with your truth that we would see where approval comes from and that we would start defining and viewing ourselves and others through the gospel, the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're following, uh, I have three points and the first one, I want to give a bit of a background, and that is, as you read these chapter, this chapter, you probably got the sense that Paul the writer, as he's writing to this church in Corinth, in ancient Greece, well, he is clearly not in a good position in his reader's eyes, is he? Uh, and it's obvious in, in, in these chapters, verse, uh, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, these final four chapters, that you're going to get a change in tone in this letter. If you've been following with us so far, you'll see a very clear mark change in tone at the beginning of chapter 10. And it becomes even more clear as we go on. Just to give you a bit of a quick summary of these uh, chapters of the whole of the book of 2 Corinthians, if you like, the first seven chapters, Paul was kind of canvassing stuff that happened in the past, all right, in his relationship with the Corinthians. And there he's... 
particularly talking to the majority of the congregation, the majority of them who formerly doubted him. Uh, there was relational strain between he and them, but it's, it's, it's been patched up, all right? And so there's some things in the past that have come up in the first seven chapters he deals with. And then in the last two chapters that we looked at last week, eight and nine, um, he's dealing with the present. That is, at the very present, while he's writing this letter, he's wanting to collect this important collection, financial aid collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. Um, and he wants them to follow through, the Corinthians to follow through on their pledge to help. And then the final four chapters, he's going to look to the future. And that's why there's a marked change in tone because Paul is saying, look, in the future, very soon, I'm going to come and visit you. So this is the letter to prepare you for my visit. Now, whereas before he's kind of directing his words at the majority of the congregation, right, the majority who now he's in pretty good relationship with again, now in these final four chapters, he's going to direct his words at a small but influential group who are unrepentant, who haven't patched up with Paul, right? They're small. They're not the majority, Right? But they are still against him. And that's why he's going to go so hard in these chapters. And we'll see that over the next few weeks. And these people especially, they're going to take as their lead a group of self-proclaimed super apostles. Uh, these people who have razzled and dazzled them with their worldly and impressive speaking skills and leadership credentials. Right? These are the guys that this small group is following. Again, he will refer to them lots and lots over the next few chapters. Now, when you read these chapters, it's a little bit like um, reading one, only one side of a, of a text message thread, all right, or a WhatsApp thread, or only listening to one part of a phone conversation. But it's actually not too hard to piece together what they might have been saying about Paul. It would have been something like this. Oh, that Paul, they said, oh, he's all high and mighty in his letters. But in his person, when he comes in person, he's so weak and is so unimpressive. In fact, last time he came, uh, he left with his tail tucked between his legs and he didn't even bother defending himself when someone stood up to oppose him. He's weak. And on top of that, he is fickle. He keeps changing his mind. He's such a weak people pleaser. And he doesn't have all of the right skills and credentials. He's nothing like the impressive leaders that we've now come to know. He doesn't have the training and the skills of those Greek debaters and orators. He couldn't give a TED talk to save his life. In fact, his preaching, we heard that his preaching actually put a guy to sleep. Guy ended up falling asleep, falling out the window and dying. And he had to raise him from the dead because he put him to sleep in the first place. Like, what's with that, right? It's the kind of stuff they would have been saying about Paul. And with all of that in the background, you hear, you see these, these verses, Paul is going to make a case for what motivates him, what drives him. And remember those key verses, last two verses? What drives him is he knows whose approval really matters. For Paul, it's God's approval and God's only. In other words, Paul performs to an audience of just one, just one. It's God. And that sets them apart from the Corinthians. It sets them apart from their fake leaders as well. All right? So that's a bit of background. Let's go to the second point. So who does God approve of? This passage is going to come to us in three sections, and each reveals a kind of approval that Paul lives by when it comes to God's approval in his life and his ministry. And firstly, you'll see that God approves of those who fight gospel battles. Now, the key verses there are verses 3, 4, and 5. Let me read them again. Follow on the overheads. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish My button didn't work. Can you go next slide? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, what's Paul saying? He's saying, look, I may not have the impressive speaking skills of classically trained Greek debaters, but look at what I do have. Look at what I and others who preach faithfully God's word, look at what we have. And here he's going to draw an image from ancient warfare. In the ancient world, a city, a big city, would have two major architectural defenses. On the perimeter would be the city wall, but on the inside would be a stronghold or a castle or a small keep. And that is where the last line of defense could happen if the walls were broken into. Now, Paul says he is in the business of demolishing those, the strongholds, the defense that is the heart of the city, which is a metaphor, an image for the defense that is the heart of each and every person who comes under the preaching of the gospel. And verse 5, he spells it out in plain language. What, what, what happens when strongholds are demolished? Well, he says, arguments, every pretension set up against the knowledge of God, they all come tumbling down. It's important here to note that Paul is not talking about out-debating people. Right? Because that is not stronghold blasting out debating someone. That is fairly superficial, in fact. Uh, one of the guys I read, a commentator of this passage, he wrote this quite helpfully. He says, Paul's weapons destroy the way people actually think. It demolishes their sinful thought patterns. See how deep it goes? The mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. That's what's targeted. That's what's demolished. And all of that is with the final result in verse 5 that he takes captive the enemy. He makes the enemy willingly give up their self-rule or they're following someone else's rule and instead come under the rule of Jesus. Now, you, you understand that and you see how powerful, how incredibly powerful this is. There is no power like it. How many of you have been in arguments or debates about Christianity or the Bible? And you may have even won these arguments, but you've seen zero change. Yeah, you've been in those situations? I have. There's no hearts captured. No one is closer to becoming converted as a result of you arguing or even winning that argument. Now, not that there isn't a place for apologetics and reasoning, there is, but you see, Paul is talking about something so much more powerful than just the arguments, right? He's talking about the supernatural power of God through the message of the gospel of Jesus that actually bends the hearts and the wills of a person and wins them over. A person a bit like C.S. Lewis. Heard of C.S. Lewis, right? He was a brilliant young Oxford professor who was basically an atheist until his early 30s. He thought there was no reason a thinking person like him would believe in God. I mean, I know, met people like him, brilliant, smart atheists. Yeah, it's so hard to talk to them, isn't it? And yet here's the thing, over the course of a few years, God spoke to him and began to chip away at his resistance through the words, books, as well as meeting the lives of others who were Christians. One of them was J.R.R. Tolkien, by the way. 
and strongholds and arguments and pretensions just get, began to be chipped away, began to crumble. Eventually, at the age of 31, this is C.S. Lewis's own words that is in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says, You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come upon, uh, upon me at last. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. That is what the gospel, the simple message of Jesus, crucified and risen, that's what it can do when it's wielded with God's power. So those of us who feel scared or intimidated by friends and family who don't believe and their reasons for not believing, God wants you to take confidence in his power through the simple gospel message. That is the kind of weapon we're talking about. See, our job is not to convert them. It's God's job. Our job is to rely on God in prayer, faithfully delivering that message as clearly and gently and humbly and courageously as we can, and you will see what God does with the weapon of the gospel. See, the person that God approves will fight with those weapons. But fighting with those weapons also influences the way we fight. You'll fight it in God's gospel way, which actually means you will not be the loud, obnoxious, intellectual bully, all right? It is not commenting on every social media post. In fact, it's often being willing not to fight in maybe the majority of situations, so much so that people might think, you are weak or unimpressive or lacking in intellect or sophistication, that you can't stand up for yourself, that you're, well, a little bit like the Apostle Paul. One of my friends who grew up in a Vietnamese church, his dad's a pastor, he said to me that one of the things he remembers growing up with his pastor dad is when the church had a, a lot of unfair and unkind things in their conflict with his dad. Uh, when that happened, he remembers his dad deciding not to say anything. And he was like, Dad, why don't you stand up for yourself? Why don't you defend yourself? We know that you're being unfairly treated. Why don't you argue back? Why don't you make a case for yourself? And his dad very wisely in Christ-like way said, no, it's not for me to stand up for myself. As Jesus remained silent against his accusers, so I will too. And that impressed my friends so much. That was probably one of the things that, as a pastor's kid, that impressed him the most about his dad's character. That was being like Christ and being like Paul. You see, those who God approves will know when and how to fight with the power of the gospel. And by and large, I reckon the more high-profile a Christian is, especially if they're high-profile on social media, the worse we are at doing at this, all right? So let me urge you, and there's not many of you in this situation, so maybe it's preaching to the choir, but don't be that person, all right? God does not need obnoxious, snarky social media warriors. Have you ever read one of those threads and have just been like, oh dear, why are Christians so angry and so unkind 
to each other, let alone the world. No, no, no. God wants people, his people, to really shut up more so that we can fight the battles that really matter. There are times when we need to fight. It's when eternity is at stake. But when we do that, we've got to do it in a way that's consistent with the gospel, okay? So that's the first one. God approves of those who fight gospel battles. The second one, God approves of those in the second section who use authority to build up verses 7 to 11. Now, this is also a very important reminder in this day and age when actually so many Christian evangelical leaders, high-profile ones you might have heard of, in fact, have actually stepped down from Christian ministry because of spiritual abuse or bullying. And we want to say here, and God's Word says there is actually no places there, in, in His church especially, for those who use authority in that way. Rather, as you look at in verse 8, this is a key verse in this section. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. God approves of those who use authority not to tear down but to build up. But it's almost as if the Corinthians wanted Paul to use authority to tear them down. They wanted him to be the spiritual strong man, bully. Now you think of it, Paul certainly could have. I mean, he could have out bullied them all if he wanted to. He is the Apostle Paul, right? Yet look how he even begins this section. Look at the first few verses of chapter 10. Look how he writes to them. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. He says, well, I beg that when I come, all right? Imagine this. He could have said, by the commissioning of the risen Lord Jesus, who I saw with my own eyes, I command you. Or he could have said, with the power of signs and wonders, I say to you. He didn't need to beg, he didn't need to plead, but he did. And he did, uh, but, and he begged and he pleaded because he understood that God's approval matters more. And that God approves of those who use authority not to tear down but to build up. And the more authority you have, the more you are to use it in that way and for those purposes. You know, my greatest regret in the first few years of being a pastor, I've been a pastor about 15 years or so, but my greatest regret in those first few years is the times that I crushed people in my congregation or those I led. They were going astray, yes. They needed a rebuke, yes, but I did it with such harshness that I crushed them rather than with the patient gentleness that God would have had me do. And I really regret that. Because that's so different to the Lord Jesus, right? Look at what Matthew says about the Lord Jesus. By the way, quoting from Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So let me speak to church leaders. As well as actually, let me speak to anyone in authority over others. And that's a lot of us. You could be in authority because you're a mum or a dad, a manager or a boss. Let me ask you, those with any sort of authority, how do you use your authority, yeah? And how do you react when that authority is challenged? How do you express frustration? Are you harsh? Do you readily fly into a rage? Do those you lead, do they feel safe? Or are they mostly just scared of you? See what Paul says in 2 Timothy? 
The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, all right? We're talking about opponents, people who must, who may actually not just irritate you, but stand up to oppose you, must be gently instructed. Incredible words, right? In the hope that God will grant the repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. God approves of those who use authority to build others up. Thirdly, the final section of chapter 10, God approves of those who serve faithfully, verses 12 to 18. Uh, Let me just read 12 to 13 again. Have a look there. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that includes also you. Uh, Again, reading between the lines, you know, one side of the phone conversation. Um, These new leaders, these self-proclaimed super apostles, well, they were great at boasting and they took credit in their boasting in their influence over the work that other people had done. All right, so they were taking credit over people like Corinthians, but guess who founded the Corinthian church. Guess who was the first to bring them the gospel? It wasn't them. It was people like Paul. People like Paul who refused to boast as they did. People like Paul who just didn't want to play that game. Because you see, in Paul's mind, he knows what God has called him to. He knows what his task is. And he just does that to the best of his ability. He doesn't need to play the boasting game. And he says to the Corinthians, by the way, that sphere includes you guys. You guys who look down on me so much, you've got to remember that you are, I'm the reason why you're even here. So Paul is not going to compare himself to these fake apostles because they just like to measure themselves with each other, pat themselves on the back. The approval of the one who called him and commissioned him and gave him his sphere of service, that's the only approval he needs. God approves of those who serve faithfully in the sphere he has assigned us to. And here's really important, all right? Get this in our heads. God does not call you and ask you for success, especially when it's in comparison to others. He's not calling us to be perfect or successful. He's asking us to be faithful. Now, that's really important because I want to apply it for a moment in whatever stage of life or sphere that you are in right now. You see, what is that? What what are you currently responsible for and accountable to God for? What what is that sphere? It may be that you're a student or a son and a daughter. That's going to be most of us. It may be that you're a worker employed somewhere. It may be that you're searching for an employment. You're unemployed at the moment. You may be single and unmarried. Or you may be married, you may be a husband or a wife. Or you may be a parent or a grandparent. Or maybe God has called you to care for someone who's elderly, your own elderly parent, or a disabled, sick family member. You may be a church member. Or you may be a leader, a ministry team leader, a CG leader. What what has God called you to right now in your particular circumstance? And he wants you, wherever that is, whatever that is, to serve faithfully and not to compare. That's much harder than it sounds, right? Those of you who are young mums, you know very well this thing called mum guilt. 
You can Google mum guilt. We have a stack of articles about it, all right? My baby can't sleep or feed well. My kid doesn't behave at preschool or do well at school. I'm working and feeling guilty. I'm not working and feeling guilty. Now, where does all of that come from? That mum guilt. Is it objective standards of right? No, it's not. It comes from comparisons, does it not? It's not just mums, it's dad guilt. It's son or daughter guilt. It's student guilt. It's career guilt. It's carer guilt. It's, oh, believe us, it's ministry guilt. Right, pastors? The pressure on us to compare our ministry, our churches. And all of this, no matter what guilt you are serving, you know, you are, you are, you are under, it's all intensified by social media, which is a, a big cesspool of comparisons, is it not? Friends, remember, God does not call you to be perfect. He's not calling you to be successful. He calls you to be faithful. Remember that infographic, that the difference between helpful guilt and unhelpful guilt and shame comes from looking sideways when your standards are no longer objective but your own unrealistic or others' unrealistic standards. But most of all, you will remember verse 18, right? It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. You and I, in whatever sphere, serve faithfully when we perform to an audience of how many? Just one. Now, I want to know two important things. Uh, firstly, don't compare does not mean there are no objective standards. I hope that's clear. Don't compare does not mean that there is zero accountability and responsibility, all right? Remember, it does matter. Like, there is healthy guilt is when you break objective standards. And in the Christian life, of course, it matters to the objective standard is God. It matters to Him when we serve Him faithfully. His Word is our objective standard. And what He wants for us in our calling to be son, daughter, parent, single, married, you know, all of those things, they're in His Word and they matter, and his word is worked out not individually, it's worked out in community. So there is such a thing as accountability and responsibility, right, to those you church with, to those who are in leadership over you at church. Yet, that's all there. But the point is this, where God's word is silent, so my guilt radar should also be off. You know what I mean? Right? Don't let my own unrealistic standards or other people's Standards based on comparisons dictate what I think I should be doing and what faithfulness means. Um, the second thing to take note is being faithful to your calling does not mean staying static or lazy. It does mean we actually should continue to be open to how God may change or redirect or expand our calling. Um, Paul, for example, he's ambitious for lots of things that to do with the gospel. His calling in his sphere of ministry keeps on expanding. He re references some of this in this chapter, in fact. So Paul, he starts off in, in, in Asia, what's called Asia Minor, then he gets to Greece, but then he'll want to expand from Greece to Rome, and then Rome, he's making plans now to go to Spain. But the, the thing to remember is that God wants us to be faithful where we are while being open to what the next thing might be, but be faithful where you are, Right? And then when he leads you to the next place, work out what faithfulness means. In other words, you may be thinking, I'm a student, but I want to be a worker. 
or I'm unemployed and I want to be employed and I'm single and I just wish I was married or I'm married and I wish we had kids and I'm parent and I wish my kids were out of the house. I'm middle-aged and I'm just waiting for retirement or I'm COVID interrupted and wishing that things would go back to normal. God is saying to you, be faithful where you are now. Like pray about the next steps. Be open and desire what may be next, but don't stop being faithful where you are now because you keep wishing you were somewhere else. Do you get what I mean? That's important, isn't it? Now you do that and you will have God's approval. And that is the only thing that matters. Remember, we perform to an audience of one. All right, final quick point. Question to ask in all of this is what if I, what if we mess up? Like what if I know I haven't been faithful? What if my sin or my deliberate neglect means that well, rather than approval, I've got God's objective disapproval. What then? Well, let's really remember how important this is. That at the place where it matters the most, where our eternity is at stake, where our core identity and our values lie, that how God views his children is always and only in Jesus, in Christ. Yes, apart from Christ, I might be a success in the eyes of everyone else, but I am a failure in the eyes of God apart from Christ because as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ, through trusting and following Jesus, I may be a failure in the eyes of the world. I may even be a failure in my own eyes often. But I can only be completely and wholly approved in the eyes of God. Why? Because God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus, who was the complete, perfectly approved Son of God, He exchanges His approval with you. He takes your sin and failure and He gives you His perfection in exchange when you put your trust in Him. You see, in Christ, where it matters the most, where your eternity and your destiny and your value and your identity lies, you are always approved. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just urge you, plead with you to turn to Jesus today. You have an opportunity. You can do it today because you will never find security like that or approval like that. Time to finish and I'm going to just end with Jeremiah chapter 9, which Paul actually refers to in these, uh, alludes to at least in these verses in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that right now, as we come face to face with your word, that we might know and understand your approval, that that would matter to us more than anything else in this world. And Father, would you please help those here especially who may struggle with either pride or self-doubt to know today just how much you love them. And they're building their identity on that. They might view themselves and view others differently. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Alright, we're going to get ready to, uh, to sing. Uh, so why don't you stand and, uh, and let the words of this next song really be something that you sing in your hearts to God. Awesome, thanks. Song, um, it's a new song, but many of you might have heard it before. It's called Yet Not I. First time we're doing it. 